So Good Friday is good because it brings the possibility of reconciliation with the Father. This sacrifice as Jesus held the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders, suffering a humiliating, bloody death. It's all a mark of God's love for all of us. As John 3.16 reads, he sent his only son to die so that all who believe may have eternal life. And so tonight, we're going to spend time in reflection, in meditation, on the seven last words of Jesus at the cross. As he hung there, look at Luke 23, 34, when Jesus asks the Father to forgive those whose actions put him on the cross. At John 19, 26 to 27, where Jesus places his mother Mary into the care of John. We'll look at Luke 23, 43, as Jesus speaks to the criminals either side of him. In Matthew 27, 45, where Jesus experiences separation from the Father as the weight of the sin begins to crush him. In John 19, 28, where Jesus declares that he has a thirst. In John 19, 30, where Jesus declares his mission complete. And then Luke 25, 46, where Jesus gives up his spirit and breathes his last. So we begin with our first word from Luke 23, verse 34, which reads, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Now this is a prayer of Jesus. He is interceding for those who are blind to their actions. And we'd read in Acts 13, 27, that those who lived in Jerusalem, that their rulers, that they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't recognize Jesus or understand the words of the prophets and that they would be fulfilled because of the actions to condemn Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8, Paul writes that none of the rulers of the age understood. For if they had, they would not have crucified Christ. See, this prayer, these words of Jesus, forgive them, they know not what they are doing. It aligns with all of Jesus' teaching but especially, especially as he teaches us to pray. And in the words of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive those we are indebted to. He was interceding for all. 
as he intercedes for us also this night and says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. In Jesus' words in Luke 23, verse 4, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a promise. What an undeserved gift. Oh, what a savior. A little bit of context because the verse before, the repentant thief says in, in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And his reply, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The repentant thief or the criminal is very relatable and an important character to me as there are so many times that I feel undeserved to receive grace and forgiveness. But isn't that just it? It's grace. Jesus up there dying. And in our Gospel of John, it's uh, suggested that Jesus died before the thief did, so the thieves on both sides see it. But he absolves the thief and announces that he will see him again. He will see him again soon on the other side of the cross in heaven. The other thief, not so much. Let's look at Jesus' saving words for just a moment. I consulted um, a great book that's called Heaven, How I Got Here, The Story of the Thief on the Cross. It's by Pastor Colin S. Smith, and he's a Scotsman, and I kept thinking his accent is probably even cooler than yours, Dan. But Pastor Colin writes in this book, Heaven, How I Got Here. The repentant thief, he was saved by Jesus. Jesus answered the repentant thief, the most helpful words possible. Quote, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. A thief who woke up in the morning on his way to hell had his eternal destiny changed with a simple plea to the Savior, Jesus, remember me. This story should remind us that first of all, salvation is a gift from God. The repentant thief had no time for good deeds. He could not repay those he had stolen from. He could not help the poor. He could not be baptized. He also did not have a sophisticated faith. He probably would have failed a Bible knowledge test. All he could do was look to his Savior with faith and ask for mercy. And that is all he needed. The experience of the repentant thief is a perfect illustration of the biblical truth that salvation is a gift of God's grace and we receive it through faith and not by works. Couldn't help but think of two quick vignettes that popped up for me as I was preparing. 
Exactly a week ago, I received a phone call about the death that day of a longtime family friend of ours from Florida. He was the dad of my namesake and the former husband of my, love, my beloved teacher and mentor, Miss Good. Anne Catherine, or Katie as she's known, she needed my assurance about where I thought her dad was now because he was a complicated man. I let her know that while I'm not the judge, I reviewed with her all the motivations behind his life of service, and we discussed his moral compass and his lifelong devotion to his three daughters. She then revealed to me that he came to faith there at the end, and we know that Jesus remembers him. That got me thinking of my own very complicated earthly father who died when I was just a teenager. He was beloved by our community and our family at large, but to my sisters and me, he was a real, how you say it kindly, son of a gun. He had huge addiction issues and big wounds that he afflicted upon me and my sisters. But in his last months, he too returned to the faith of his childhood. I remember for those final months, he had me read to him from the Bible daily and pray with him. And as he lay dying, he, he repented. And I believe that Jesus's words were for dad too. Because the truth is, we are all like that thief. We have all sinned against a holy God and we deserve his wrath. And one day, every human being must appear for judgment. However, as we saw in the story of the thief, there is hope for everyone, everyone who humbles themselves before God in faith and in repentance. If you do this, Jesus will say to you with joy, truly, I say to you, you will be with me today in paradise. The next reading is from the 19th chapter of John. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his home. One thing that jumps out from this reading is the term Jesus uses to speak to his mother, calling her woman. At first glance, that sounds rather harsh, but looking at the New Living Translation, the, the phrase is rendered as dear woman, showing all the great respect and affection Jesus had for his mother. The second thing that jumps out is Jesus' reference to the disciple whom he loved. When we talk about a close friend today, we use the expression, brother from another mother. He would also describe Jesus' relationship to the disciple whom he loved. And who was this disciple? It was John, the author of the fourth gospel from which, from which this passage was taken. John, his brother James, Peter, and Andrew were the very first disciples that Jesus called. 
more than just a follower of Jesus, more than just one of the 12 apostles, John, along with Peter and James, comprised Jesus' inner circle, his most trusted friends. The three of them, Peter, James, and John, were with Jesus when some of the most notable miracles of his ministry occurred. The healing of the synagogue leader's daughter, the transfiguration, the raising of Lazarus. At the Last Supper, which we remembered last night, John chapter 13, verse 23, tells us that the disciple whom Jesus loved was sitting next to him at the table, a place of honor only lower than the host, Jesus himself. John was also the only apostle mentioned in Scripture who was watching at the cross. But why ask John to watch over Mary, Jesus' mother? The law of Moses required a widow's children to take care of her, and so it should come as no surprise that Jesus, as he hung there, dying, would ask John to take care of Mary. And the last part of verse 27 above makes it clear that from that hour, John took her into his home. The brother from another mother had been designated a true brother of Jesus. And as once again we gaze on the cross where Jesus died, let us join the band in song. Jesus Christ, I think about your sacrifice. You became nothing, poured out till death. Many times I've wondered at your gift of life, and I'm in that place once again. I'm in that place once again. Once again I look upon the cross where you died. By your mercy and I'm broken inside Once again I thank you Once again I pour out my life Now you are Exalted to the highest place King of the heavens Where one day I'll bow Once again, I'm in for praise once again. Once again, I look upon the cross where you died. I'm humbled by your presence and I'm broken inside. Once again, I thank you. Once again, I I'm broke. 
chapter 27 and 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? For the three hours which led up to those words of Jesus, there was darkness. Darkness is a sign of sorrow. It's a sign of judgment. And both of those things are in play here. There's the sorrow on the part of Jesus as he bears the weight of the world's sin. And that's coupled with the judgment of the Father that he too is feeling. You hear the sin, the sin which is being bore by Jesus brings him to feel a separation from the Father. It's the only place in Scripture where Jesus does not refer, does not refer to God as Father. but instead cries, Eli, Eli, which is Hebrew for my God, my God. And then Lema Savaktani, which is Aramaic. Why have you forsaken me? The words, heartbreaking. For those who were standing at the cross and heard those words, I'm sure it caused them some grief. But they will also have been reminded of Psalm 22, which begins with those words but continues with verses 1 and 2 saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. That grief that Jesus felt as he was literally being ripped away from the Father, separated from the Father. Because the Father could not look upon sin. And yet there is Jesus bearing all the sin of the world. And as we think on that, the fact is that it was my sin, it was your sin that held him there on the cross as he offered himself for us. So let us come to the cross 
this evening, offering all we have, all of ourselves, to him in reply.
John, the 19th chapter, the 20th verse. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. While I've never been to Jerusalem, I have traveled to the Middle East and have felt the oppressive heat combined with extreme dryness. I've seen a thunderstorm come in and watched animals emerge from their lairs in hopes of some refreshing rain, only to return disappointed when the moisture evaporated in midair. Before a drop even struck the ground. But I was prepared for this dryness and stayed well hydrated during my daily activity, so even in these conditions I cannot remember being completely parched, as Jesus must have been on the cross. There was good reason for him to be thirsty, considering his sufferings throughout that day. He was scourged, nearly to the point of death, which caused much blood loss. He was crowned with thorns, piercing his brow, again causing more blood to flow. He carried the cross along the Via Della Rosa, out to Golgotha during the heat of the day causing several stumbles due to the rigorous journey and likely dehydration from the sweat pouring out of his body. And he hung on the cross for three hours, with additional wounds draining him further. Until this passage in scripture, never once is there mention that he was offered water or any other form of refreshment. Very much like during his time in the temple and his teachings throughout his travels, before dying, Jesus had enough strength to make a final reference to Scripture. There are two possibilities for this passage in John 19.28. It could be Psalm 22.15, My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, my tongue sticks to my jaws, you lay me in the dust of death. Or more likely, Psalm 69 Verse 21, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Either way, he was faithful to his father's word right till the end. 
And those versed in the Psalms would likely have made the connection. But when Pastor Dan asked me to consider this more deeply, I was moved to think of another definition of the word thirst. Although some other biblical translations use the phrase, I am thirsty, it still leads to the same conclusion. While thirst is mostly thought of as a sensation of dryness of the mouth related to the need or desire to drink, it can also meet an insistent desire or craving. Given that second definition, was Jesus publicly voicing the desire to now be with his father? Because of the sorrow of those watching him die, I don't know that even his closest friends who were there may have made this connection. Those who were attending to him, we know the story, they took a, a sponge and they dipped it into wine vinegar and, and put it up for him to drink. But upon reflection, it makes sense, as he knew his time was drawing near. To me, he was once again in a final earthly breath, showing us how the desire, how he desired a closer relationship with God. Even though we face challenges in our own lives, including disasters, relationship issues, sickness, death, you will likely face the pain and suffering that Jesus faced in his death. But wouldn't it be wonderful if we could all share that same thirst, that same intense desire to be with our Father? And wouldn't it also be wonderful if we were to publicly proclaim on a regular basis that craving so those who do not know the love of God through Jesus might better understand, might, might see God? I think that is part of our calling as Christians and more especially as disciples very well reflected in the mission of St. John, seeing lives transformed by the good news of the gospel through following God, sharing life, and loving our neighbor. My prayer is that we all daily seek the kind of thirst in our lives. The sixth word from John chapter 19, verse 30, part A. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus said, it is finished. His work here on earth was done. And then he gave up his spirit. He gave it up. It was not ripped away from him. He was not forced to hand it over. And those soldiers did not steal it from him. He chose to obey the Father's will and gave up his spirit. Gave it back to his Father, our Father, as a sacrificial act of love. You have all heard me preach. I go on for eons and eons. But tonight, I feel impelled to ask you to reflect just on that fact that 
He gave it up. He made this choice for me and for you. Jesus made that choice, the choice to die, so that we might live eternally. Seventh and last word from Luke, chapters 23, verses 45b and 46. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The darkness that had covered the earth and now as the sun's light truly faded the temple curtain it was torn as Jesus gave up his life. Now the, the curtain separated the people from the most holy of places. But Jesus' actions, they elevate all who choose to believe. They're elevated to be a child of God. Jesus gives up his life. Completes the mission which God had sent him to earth to fulfill. And in offering up his life, he offers you the opportunity to be reconciled to God. In this moment, Jesus is giving his entirety, his body and his soul to the Father. Now being fully human and being fully divine, Jesus could have got down from the cross. He could have exercised the authority that he had. But he chose to remain there. Because without finishing this dark day on the cross, there would be no bright day of grace three days later. How deep the Father's love is. How deep the love of Christ is for his church. That he endured the very cause of sin. So that he endured the result of our sin. So that we instead could live. It is the wounds of Jesus 
that pay the ransom for our action. And so may it be that with you, and I pray that it is with me, that on our last day, we too can pray as Jesus did. Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. I ran. 